Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests, and those of you wearing the funny animal hats, welcome! Good evening, this is Walter Cronkite. Tonight, we welcome you to a joyous celebration of the season. On second thought, I just remembered how much I hate space travel. You have a nice trip, though, Artem. Attention, please. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and thank you for tuning in once again. This is show number 44 for the week of December 9th, 2007. With this week being Mousefest, the annual gathering of Disney fans from around the world in Walt Disney World, I have to record the show early this week so there won't be any news or rumors. But to celebrate the holiday season, I'm going to welcome back Tim Foster from GuideToTheMagic.com to discuss our top 10 favorite Christmas moments in Walt Disney World as we explore some of the places and ways to spend the holidays in and around the parks and resorts. This is also a great opportunity to answer a number of your emails, so Jeff Pepper is going to join me to answer questions about everything from Epcot Vibe to The Making of Me, The Steel Drum Band in Adventureland, The Discovery River Taxi, Disney's Animal Kingdom, and many more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. With the holiday season in full swing, I wanted to invite back Tim Foster from GuideToTheMagic.com and author of the Guide to the Magic series of books to once again do another top 10 list with me. And this time, we thought we would talk about our top 10 favorite Christmas moments in Walt Disney World. So first, Tim, let me welcome you back to the show. Hey, Lou. So great to be back. It's snowing. It's raining. It's leading outside. I'm so ready for Christmas. I was, and I'm so ready to leave for Disney for Mouse Fest. <laughs> that too. I've heard it's going to be beautiful next week. But you know what? A, a a bad day in Disney World is better than a good day in New Jersey. I say. So. Absolutely. But Tim, we uh, you know instead of just doing a normal top ten list of some of the the um, kind of well known things that go on during the holidays, like some of the special events and decorations, we're also going to talk about some of the things that celebrate the holidays that can be found a few other places in Walt Disney World all year long. So to kick off the list, why don't we talk about one that's probably not on everybody's, the top of everybody's list, but probably one they've seen many, many times. Yeah, this is, uh, this is actually one you can do all year round with an asterisk, which I'll explain a little bit. This is uh, the Carousel of Progress, of course, in Tomorrowland. And I say all year round because you got to remember it is open seasonally, seasonally when uh, things get a little busy. But it does get busy around Christmas time, so if you go down, you will be able to see it. But uh, the thing I like about it the most is the Christmas scene at the end. And um, what most people don't realize, especially people who are there for the first time, is not only as you see the show are you progressing through the years with the family, but you're also progressing through the seasons. And the last season, of course, being Christmas, you also get to see Halloween and the 4th of July and so on. But far and away to me, the Christmas scene is the most magical one. It makes me feel 
all holidays, even if it's 90 degrees outside and it's the middle of summer. Uh, for, for one, I'd love to live in that house. That house is spectacular with the, the kitchen and the dining room and everything. Uh, but my uh, favorite moments, I think, are the this is what I'd love to have in my house. The brighten the Christmas tree lights by 30% or whatever number it was, and the, and the lights brighten up. I don't have that in my house. I'd really like that in my house. I still have to plug them in myself. <laughs> but um, the other thing I like, uh, the thing I think that's funny is uh, Grandma in the virtual reality game. And it's funny as the show goes on and she's playing and everyone else is talking. And you, if you pay attention to her, she's she's pretty good at that game. And she's silently dominating. And, and it's just funny to watch. And the, you see the little boy in there who's getting more dejected as Grandma's doing well and doing well. Um, but a couple things to look for as the scene plays out. Uh, a couple of hidden Mickeys, which I like. There's a, a hidden Mickey salt and pepper shakers that are in the kitchen, which are very hard to see. I spend so much time looking around in the kitchen for hidden Mickeys, I kind of lose sight of where the show's going. Um, but also, like uh, the painting over the fireplace, there's a hidden Mickey in there, too. So, a couple little things to look for. But beyond that, just a nice way to get in the Christmas spirit, even in the hot days of summer. It's one of my favorite places to go. I'm actually a really big Carousel of Progress fan, and I like the final scene. Um, you know, admittedly, this is one that some people complain needs to be updated because this Christmas home of the future, other than the Tim Foster wish list, you know, brighten your <laughs> lights. Uh, a lot of the other stuff is really not so much the future, but things that are even today or maybe even the past a little bit. That virtual reality game, you know, might have a lot of 12-year-olds laughing and some of the other technologies um, are things that are in place in a lot of homes. So this is one scene that a lot of people have called for an additional update, much like the ones they had back in 81 and I think again um, in 1994 or, or somewhere around there. But you're right, this scene is filled with a lot of hidden treasures, like you said, hidden Mickeys. There's a reference to Marty Sklar up on the, on the board. So next time you go, try and look for some more of those little details. But again, this is one of those places where Christmas is being celebrated all year long. And number nine on the list is another one of those places, and that's Disney Day, Disney's Days of Christmas in downtown Disney. And that is a year-round Christmas store uh, where you can get anything from decorations to ornaments to collectibles to figurines to personalized items. They have Hanukkah merchandise. Um, obviously, you know, during Christmas time, it gets uh, exponentially busier. But um, it, it's a great store. It, it compares to what used to be maybe in the Magic Kingdom on Main Street on a much, much grander scale because they have just about anything you can think of there. Uh, they have a lot of theme park-specific items. And, you know, even, like I said, during the holidays, it's even ramped up more because you're really in the season and there's so much else going on in downtown Disney, like Festival of the Seasons, and the window shopping down there is even better. You can meet Santa Claus. There's also... Um, choirs performing on the dock stage there's dance parties there's a lot of things going on but even any time of year even when it's 120 degrees out with 95 percent humidity disney's days of christmas is one of those great stores in walt disney world especially if you're really into the christmas season well speaking of shopping one of my favorite places too over in the magic kingdom it's another one of these uh things you can enjoy all year round is the ye old christmas shop in liberty square it's actually my wife's favorite shop and uh, for good reason. It's really, really neat to go in there, hot days of August, and be smack in the middle of Christmas. You can do get your 
ornaments and your decorations and all kinds of goodies for Christmas and, and getting that holiday spirit. It's also a lot of fun at Christmas time, by the way. We keep talking about doing these in the summer, but they're especially fun this time of year. And the thing I find interesting with the old Christmas shop is that there's actually three stores in there, um, depending on how you count them, being the music teacher shop, the woodcarver shop, and the home of the Pennsylvania German family, which is named Keppel, which as everybody knows is the name of Walt Disney's grandfather. Me living in Pennsylvania, I have a special spot in my heart for that part. Um, but again, uh, one of my wife's favorite places, one of my favorite places, and a great place to visit any time of year. Yeah, and you know, as long as we're talking about stores, there's a few other places uh, in and around property that celebrate and sell Christmas uh, memorabilia all year long. And in addition to the old Christmas shop and Days of Christmas, you can also go to It's a Wonderful Shop over in the Disney MGM Studios. That's between Mama Rell Roses and the Toy Story Pizza Planet. The shop in Germany, which whose name I will so try not to butcher, Die Weinachseck, forgive me, that also has some great things in there, as well as the uh, the pickle ornament. And if you've ever heard uh, of the, the legend of the pickle ornament, that's something that uh, German families used to decorate on Christmas Eve. You could actually go in there, you can get a pickle ornament. You could talk to the people who work in the pavilion about the legend and how it sort of came to be. Uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom doesn't have a Christmas store, but I know Disney's out, uh, Disney Outfitters also has a selection of some pretty unique Christmas ornaments decorated like animal prints and, and things like that. So that's near, um, it's on Discovery Island. So there's, there's a store really in every one of the theme parks where you can get Christmas decorations all year long. And the other thing, uh, just real quick, the thing you must have on your Christmas tree, and I got mine a few years ago, is your monorail model set. Mine's got the purple stripe on it, but... I have a red stripe monorail set. <laughs> very nice. My cats love chasing it, and we have a spaceship Earth that goes through it, even though it really doesn't go through spaceship Earth in real life, but that's a must for anybody's Christmas tree. Well, my Christmas tree, anyway. Uh, you know what? I have one as well. I've had it for years. This is the first year we're contemplating not taking it out because my son is two years old. Two-year-old monorail sets and little buildings. We have, you know, all the hotels. We've got the Polynesian and the Grand mm-hmm. Floridian. I just see disaster and me coming home and, and you know, I'll be hanging Nicholas on the Christmas tree. That could be trouble. <laughs> so, but let's move on to, to some of the other great things. Again, these are really in no specific order. We, we should mention that because the thing I'm going to mention next uh, is one of my favorites. And that's the, the Candlelight Processional Massed Choir in Epcot. That's the America Gardens Theater. That takes place three times a night. It's free. It's included with the price of admission. You can do a dining package, which will combine basically uh, you, you make a reserve, an ADR at a reservation, and it'll give you guaranteed seating um, at any of the shows for 5, 6.45, or 8.15 p.m. There's all different types of tiers and different price structures. But the, the Candlelight Processional, Tim, I think is just absolutely you want to talk about an evocative and emotional thing. It's a giant massed choir with over 400 performers, some coming as far as from the United Kingdom. Uh, There are members of the Voices of Liberty, current and past, that sing there, as well as a 50-piece live orchestra, celebrity narrators. And they tell the story of Christmas in both words and music. And it really, really is something that's moving. I got to see it again last year. um, And just something that I think is absolutely spectacular and free. And it's important to note that it's free. 
Yeah, I think Doogie Howser is there this year. That's who I saw last year. I saw Doogie. <laughs> really? <laughs> the thing, I, I agree with you, Candlelight Processional is, is absolutely beautiful. Uh, the thing I, I'll pass on, too, if you're, of course, it's in the theater, and there's long lines to get into the shows, and, and even though they are free, but even if you're casually walking around World Showcase and it's going on, you'll be able to get a glimpse of it, as uh, for people who don't know the American Theater faces the American Pavilion and you can, as you're walking past you can look down into it and as you walk by and if the show's going on you, you can stand by and just catch a glimpse of it and you're not down in the heart of it but it's still stunning, the, the lights and the, and, and the music is, is beautiful and that, that whole area of course is lit up with so many Christmas lights because there's so many trees in that pavilion it's yeah. just a wonderful place to walk and how, and how the choir is costumed and, and what they do with the candles um, making it look like a Christmas tree. It's wonderful. Just to, to give you a sampling of some of the celebrity narrators, you mentioned Neil Patrick, ha- ha- Neil Patrick Harris, a.k.a. Doogie Howser. There's also Stephen Curtis Chapman, Cheetah Rivera, Andy McDowell. Those of you from the 80s will know and love Kirk Cameron, Edward James <laughs> Olmos, Gary, Mission Space, Sinise, Rita Moreno, Rita Moreno and Marley Maitland. So there's, there's a wide variety. David Robinson, the basketball player, was there. So you really get... Uh, like I said, a wide variety of different celebrities there. And, you know, I, I've seen a few, and, and each of them puts their own sort of unique spin in telling the tale um, and what they bring to it. But if you get a chance to see it, I, I highly, highly recommend checking out the Candlelight Processional. Yeah, it's really fantastic. Uh, while we're in Epcot, the thing I really like at Epcot is the tree lighting and the lights of winter. And uh, for those who don't know, this is the lights of winter takes place on the promenade that connects future world and world showcase and it's just an unbelievable display of lights about 30,000 I think is the number and as you walk towards world showcase you're just walking underneath arches and arches and arches of brilliant lights and occasionally throughout the night they will flash and and move and and it's really incredible to watch and uh, the tree which is at the entrance to the world showcase there's a tree lighting ceremony every evening at six o'clock which is which is fun to watch you you there's a little ceremony and they turn the lights on uh, the thing i like though if you have seen the ceremony before but you want to see the tree lit up the thing i like doing is going on the walkway that runs by the odyssey building because you get to see everything but you're not caught up in all the throngs of people that are there to watch the show. Although if you haven't watched the show, be sure to see it at least once. It is kind of neat. Um, the thing that's really magical, and I did, I managed to do this once, was if you're taking the monorail into Epcot uh, during the evening at this time of year, you're, the monorail will actually go through the lights mm-hmm. in, in the lights of winter, and that's beautiful. Especially if they happen to be coincidingly lighting up right as you're going through. That's, that's pretty amazing and, and quite magical in its own right. That, that's what I was going to say. I was like, if, if you can time it just right as the lights are dancing to the music, a lot of you know, trans-Siberian orchestra, um, holiday-type music, it's absolutely spectacular no matter where you see it from, but the monorail is just sort of an extra bonus if you're able to time it, like you said, just right. Yeah. And the tree, the, the tree is always beautiful. I, I noticed this year it, it's a little more subdued than it's been in the last couple of years. I remember it being a lot more colorful before, and this year it seems to be still spectacular, but more in the silvers and golds and a little more elegant than it's been last year. But one of my favorite Christmas trees in all of Walt Disney World and one you shouldn't miss. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, Main Street USA is where I think really in the Magic Kingdom just 
Christmas and the whole season is really embodied on that view down Main Street. But there's something about being in Epcot with the music and the lights of winter and the tree. But that's actually going to lead me, Tim, to what's something next on my list. And something that I think is almost really a hidden treasure because so many people either don't know about it or don't take the time to either schedule to see them or walk right by them if they do see them. And those are the Epcot storytellers. And those are in World Showcase. And during this holidays around the world, each of the different nations uh, has its own version of, you know, to say the American Santa Claus. And they come out, they visit with guests, and they tell holiday stories from their country. So, for example, in Mexico, you get Los Tres Reyes Magos, and they tell the story of the Three Kings. In Norway, you get Julensen. He tell, talks about um, uh, Christmas in Norway. China is something very unique. You get the Monkey King. They don't celebrate Christmas. And he tells a very, very uh, funny sort of anecdote about um, how he was born from stone and how he kind of got all of his wisdom. Germany has St. Nicholas talking about the first Christmas tree. Um, he tells a wonderful, wonderful story while you're there. You can go get your little pickle for your pickle tree. <laughs> um, Italy is something very, very unique. And, and having an Italian background, I never knew about La Bifana, who's a witch. And she is the one that actually brings presents to children. She tells a really great tale. And the woman who's been there the last couple of years has been exceptional. Obviously, in America, we have Santa Claus. Japan talks about the tales of the Daruma seller. And uh, Darumas are good luck dolls and symbols of New Year. Uh, Morocco talks about tales of the Taj. And there's a drummer who kind of explains about this feast of Ashura. And uh, again, something very unique you're not going to be able to catch anywhere else. France has uh, Père Noël. United Kingdom has Father Christmas. And Canada, you actually have an elf talking about Santa Claus because, you know, Canada is obviously home to the North Pole. So who better to tell the story Uh, I think, like I said, they're wonderful. They play multiple times throughout the day and night. Definitely something to take the time and and either make it a point to go and see uh, or pick a couple out and see if you could time it just right. You can get your times guide when you get to the park to find out exactly when they'll be there. And you can even talk to these these performers and ask them questions. And it's great for adults and kids. Again, it's free. Uh, You know, I I like to point that out because uh, things like the Christmas party are, are an extra ticketed event. But this is something free. And um, just really, really a nice thing to do during the holidays in Epcot. Yeah, I think the United Kingdom one was my favorite one. But, but they are. They're all wonderful. Um, while we're in Epcot, um, I think my f- probably my all-time favorite holiday moment down there is the holiday ending to Illuminations, which, of course, in its own right, it's, is spectacular and always, I will say, brings a tear to my eye. But the, the ending that is added during the holiday season is nothing compared to what came before it. It's absolutely spectacular. Yeah, and the narration by Walter Cronkite is exceptional. And like I said, the music right. and the fireworks, the amount of shells that they launch in that little seven or eight minute tag is equal, if not greater, than what they launch throughout the rest of Illumination. So you can only imagine, if you haven't seen it, uh, pictures and videos online just won't do it justice. And that actually, I'm going to quickly segue to something else that maybe you've seen online but haven't had a chance to see in person that I think pictures and uh, videos certainly don't do it justice and that's the brand new Cinderella Castle Dreamlights that's a a show that takes place every night not just during Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party I need to be clear you don't have to go to the Christmas party to see it it's at 545 on the Castle Four Court stage it's a little seven minute show with the Fab Five and Cinderella and the Fairy Godmother and I won't ruin the story for you But what they've done is they've covered Cinderella Castle in 200,000 bright white 
LEDs and 500 strobes and the display that it get, gets put on to make it look like the castle has been covered in ice and covered in crystal is just spectacular. I, I've always been a purist about putting things on the castle and I didn't like what they did with the, with the castle cake. Uh, I thought it was blasphemous when Stitch toilet papered the cake. I was okay with the gold decorations, but I think this is just beautiful. And that view down Main Street as you're walking in or walking out and you see this castle lit up and the holiday decorations and the music, you want to talk about something that's breathtaking. Uh, people literally gasped. I, I was there the first night that they had a soft preview, and you could hear people gasping as the castle began to light up, and it was just, it was really, really something wonderful to see. Yeah, it's beautiful. I got a quick glimpse of it earlier, and I'll get I'll get a better view this time around, but yeah, the little I saw, it is absolutely outstanding. I can't believe you didn't like the birthday cake. I love the birthday cake, but... Uh... I have bad, you know what? I have bad memories of the birthday cake, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> Maybe it was the the Pepto Bismol pink that you didn't care for. Again, uh, it's the purest in me. So, uh, well, I understand. Um, well, before I get into my last one, a little bit more about Cinderella Castle. One little hidden treasure there that I like to tell people about is uh, the fairy tale garden, which is you're approaching Cinderella Castle from Main Street, is tucked around on the right hand side. And it's not overly spectacular, but if you go around into the fairy tale garden, they usually have a little Christmas tree set up. And when there's nobody back there, which is usually most of the time, just a nice little spot to sit down and sit by the tree and enjoy the holiday spirit. So I just wanted to throw that one in a little bit, something I always enjoy doing when I'm there during the holiday season. But for the next thing I want to talk about, uh, we'll go over to the Disney MGM Studios, and I think everyone will know what we're talking about here talking about five million lights on 350 miles of wire little more than i got on my house um, we're talking of course about the osborne lights at the disney mgm studios and uh just amazing if, if you haven't seen it before you've, you got to take the time to go over there they string all up and down new york street on streets of america with millions and millions of lights and you can't imagine that many lights being in one place but when they turn them on it's absolutely spectacular and, of course, the other thing that's really neat there, just like they do at the Very Merry Christmas Party, is actually make it snow, which is surprising when it's 80 degrees outside. Um, it's very, very nice. Uh, and the one tip I like to tell people, this is the way I did it the first time I saw it, and I actually got kind of lucky I did it this way. But if you're going to go see the Osborne Family Lights, especially as it gets closer to Christmas, it's getting a little more crowded, be at Disney MGM Studios during the day, if not the whole day, go early in the afternoon and find yourself on the streets of America before everything gets going and kind of wander around and you'll be there for the countdown and the lights will go on. Wander around, enjoy it, have a great time. Because uh, I did that one year and as I then left the MGM Studios, the line of people to come in to see the Osborne Family Lights, which is the reason they were coming that night, was unbelievable. So if you want to avoid getting in that long line and getting herded through the through the maze to go see the lights uh, just be sure to get there early and get your spot and take your time and enjoy the park and then enjoy the lights I mean, you'll have a great time but if you do go Christmas this is definitely a must see things you have to do it's absolutely spectacular I agree and I think they're fun and I think they're beautiful especially as you get farther down the street uh, by the angels over the last couple of years it's changed because now that the Osborne 
family spectacle of dancing lights, and they dance to music at certain intervals throughout the night, again, with music like from Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And if you think the lights themselves, the millions of lights themselves are impressive, just wait till you see them start dancing to the music. Because again, it's that kind of jaw-dropping, people applauding when it's over kind of thing, and... Again, it, it's free. Um, you talk about 80 degrees. I remember a couple of years ago, you know, people were in hats and mittens and scarves and drinking hot chocolate because it can get kind of chilly in Florida sometimes at night. And I think that almost adds to it because you really kind of get that sense that it really is Christmas time. And uh, just one of those real spectacular decorations that Disney does um, at MGM. It's nice if it is a little chilly. Actually, that reminds me. I wanted to offer up an illuminations tip if I could going back there. I was there when it was cold, and it can it can dip down a little bit in December. I think it must have gotten down to the 40s and a little nippy. Well, next on the list is, uh, is something that you have to keep in mind, because like being at Downtown Disney, not all the great holiday stuff can be found inside the theme parks. You don't have to go to a theme park to enjoy some of the Walt Disney World's true treasures during the holidays and some of the things that go on uh, at some of the resorts especially the monorail resorts are legendary like the gingerbread house but I want to direct your attention specifically to one resort that you might not say well that I need to take a special trip over to see but that's Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge and if you happen to go to Disney's Animal Kingdom one day and have a little bit of time to kill head on over to the lodge because the tree that they have there much like the one at Disney's Animal Kingdom is so unique and so authentic and so beautiful, it's actually worth taking the trip. If you go over to Boma, they also have this little miniature uh, African village, which is, believe it or not, entirely edible. It's all made out of candies and pretzels and chocolates and things like that, uh, as well as gingerbread. And all the houses are African-inspired. So again, this is not something that you'd see at you know the boardwalk or the beach club or at the Grand Floridian because of how unique they are. Um, Santa, Mickey, and Minnie, and Goofy show up on Christmas Day if you happen to be there. And uh, the, the music is wonderful, and it's just great. And again, if you happen to be going to eat maybe at Boma or Jico, you're really in for a special treat with the decorations at uh, the Animal Kingdom Lodge. Yeah, that is surprising. Uh, just going around the resorts in general, though, is something that most people might not think to do. But if you, if you can, take the time to do it. And even if you don't make your way over to the Animal Kingdom Lodge... It is a little easier to go around the monorail resorts and the Epcot resorts, too. And uh, I want to talk about a couple of my favorite resorts in that area, over at the Magic Kingdom. If you can get over to the Wilderness Lodge, even though it's not on the monorail, but they have a spectacular Christmas display on Of course, the Wilderness Lodge is, is already the northwestern theme, rustic timber frame and all that. But the way they decorate it for Christmas makes you feel like you're really in a Rocky Mountain Christmas. The, the tree is huge which is um, because the lobby is so big seemed is only natural that the tree can be so large but in addition to the tree the rafters are hung with garlands and wreaths and every one of them is lit up and and you just want to go in there and just cozy on up by the fire the other resort I really like which is on the monorail is the Grand Floridian of course and that the tree they have there is, is absolutely stunning and beautifully elegant and this is where you'd want to go if you want to get in the mood of a Victorian Christmas and of course they have the gingerbread house there uh, life size which is really nice so you can go over and buy yourself a cookie uh, the be- decorations are absolutely beautiful we love to just go over and sit in the lobby and enjoy the music and watch the tree um, but even at the Epcot resorts if you go around Yacht Club, Beach Club, Boardwalk just go in each one, take a walk around the boardwalk 
walk into the lobbies and see all the trees and the displays that each one has. Each one is a little different, a little unique. And as you walk around, you'll get a really great sense of the holidays. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful thing to do. And most people don't take the time to do it, but if you can, go ahead and take a walk. You'll, you'll be glad that you did. Yeah, even if you just, if you happen to be at the Magic Kingdom, you want to take a break from the parks or, or want to maybe dine at one of the restaurants on the monorail, stop at the Grand Floridian, check out the Gingerbread House, stop at the Polynesian for something a little bit different. And uh, definitely, like I said, take the time at least to go there. But Tim, obviously, first and last on our list here is going to be Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party, probably the, the crown jewel of what goes on during the holidays uh, over at the Magic Kingdom. This is a hard-ticketed event, so you do need something else above and beyond your Magic Kingdom theme park admission. But if you like the holidays, uh, this is really something that, that I recommend you try at least once because there's so much going on there above and beyond things like a special version of Wishes. There's a Holiday Wishes. There is a special parade with Santa Claus, and, and that parade alone is to a certain degree, worth the price of admission. But there's plenty of shows as well, like Mickey's Twas the Night Before Christmas. There's Bell's Enchanted Christmas. Um, up until a couple years ago, you used to have the Country Bears, a special Christmas show. There's, like I said, the Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Parade. Um, the tree lighting ceremony. So much that goes on above and beyond just having the snow on Main Street and the decorations and the holiday music and the free hot chocolate and cookies uh, and the ability to ride some of your favorite attractions up until the wee hours of the morning. Um, I'm going to Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party again this year. I went twice last year. Something that I really, really enjoy and highly recommend for, for so many, so many reasons. Yeah, it's wonderful. Again, I, I was there before I'm going this year. And and I love the little things like the hot chocolate and the cookies and the apple slices, which are nice. And and, and, and the snow on Main Street, like you mentioned, is one of my favorite things. But um, don't forget, too, it, it's got all the same perks as a regular extra magic hours are so you'll get to ride all of your favorite attractions till you can't take it anymore because there won't be like they keep the attendance down somewhat so the rides don't get too crowded especially as the evening rolls on you'll find you'll pretty much have the park to yourself towards the end and it's just walking around especially down main street with all the lights and the snow and the, and the christmas music going on it's really an unforgettable experience yeah, and, and like I said, you know, there's Santa Claus on Main Street, and the shows are not, you know, let me just be clear. These shows, like the tw- uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas, is not some little five-minute show. I mean, there's 11 songs in that show. The Bells Enchanted Christmas is almost a 20-minute show. So there's a lot to do that could really take your time. And obviously, the Christmas Parade uh, is very, very long. I mean, there's 15 floats, so it goes on for a pretty long period of time. And like I said, you grab your hot chocolate, you grab your cookie, your apple slices, and you can really have... A really, really nice time. And with the castle decorated with the lights this year, I think it's going to be even more spectacular. So those are just 10 or maybe 10 to 15 of some of the great things that go on in Walt Disney World during the holiday season. It's one of my favorite times of year to go, not just because of the decorations, but because the crowd levels are, are low. As long as you don't go during the peak times, it's value season. Uh, the weather's a lot cooler. You have all these added bonuses above and beyond what you just get for your park admission. So uh, th- there's really something special about spending time um, at Walt Disney World, especially if you get a chance to stay on property at one of the resorts. Yeah, it's uh, one of my favorite times to be there. And I'm looking forward to being there again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and that's the joy of going down for Mouse Fest is that we get to enjoy a great time of year. 
Uh, we get to enjoy all the events of Mouse Fest as well as the holidays and the decorations. So, Tim, I want to thank you for coming on again for yet another top 10 list. Um, these were both seasonal, but we're going to try and do a couple of unique ones maybe in the future as well. To find out more about Tim and his books, Guide to the Magic, you can go to guidetothemagic.com. Tim, I'll see you at Mouse Fest, and thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks, Lou. Since we don't have any news or rumors this week because of when I have to record and produce the show, I thought it would be a great opportunity to get through a bunch of emails. So I wanted to bring on a guest to join me in order to answer some of them. You know him as Cody's father or Dream Boy or the president of his own fan club. And he is, of course, Jeff Pepper from 2719Hyperion.com. You're choking me up with that introduction. That's really I, I thought you'd be moved. I thought you'd be <laughs> <laughs> So, Jeff, it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, we just, with everything that's been going on, we haven't had a chance to do any DSIs or, or things like that. So I won't figure it'll be a great time for you to come on. Maybe we'll get through some um, some pretty interesting emails tonight. Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's get through. we got a lot to get through. The first one comes from Carlos. He says, Lou, I'm a longtime listener, first-time emailer. First off, I love your show. I think you put on a professional, top-notch podcast, and I look forward to downloading the latest episode every Sunday. My question is this. Way back when the Disney MGM Studios was still a working animation studio, there used to be this movie shown at the end of the tour. I don't mean the one at the beginning with Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite. There was a movie finality, finale much like The Great Movie Ride, in where it was a montage of Disney animated classics. I remember that in the very beginning, it showed all the characters entering the movie theater, intermixed with live-action people. There was even a part in the beginning where Mickey asked the patron in front of him if he could move over a bit, that patron stands up and turns around, revealing that it's the demon from Fantasia. He starts to get all bent out of shape, opening his wings when all of a sudden Michael Eisner appears and orders him to sit down. Then the demon turns all sweet and apologizes, saying it'll never happen again. Is this any of this ringing a bell? I mention this to people and they think I'm, <laughs> I'm on heavy drugs or that my obsession with Disney has finally gotten the better of me. Please, Lou, tell me you know of this movie, Carlos. Carlos, you know, I was trying to think back when I was reading this email to a movie f uh, finale. Jeff, does this ring a bell to you at all? Uh, Carlos, I think I know what you're talking about. That was... Actually, you've, you're remembering the film correctly. It was a film that featured all the characters, and there was the interchange between uh, Mike Weisner and Chernabog. But it was actually at the end of the uh, studio tour and not in the magic of animation. It was... The final uh, portion or attra part attraction portion of the uh, the walking tour, where they you went into a theater at the very end, and I believe they had that introduction that you speak of that had all the characters in it, and then it, it, I believe Lou, if you can back me up on this, or if you if you remember in the same way as I am, they showed you like previews of coming attractions of upcoming Disney films. Right, and it's actually the same theater that you occupy now for Walt Disney One Man's Dream, and what I also remember about it was the scene with uh, Mickey Mouse wearing the Michael Eisner watch. Yeah, in fact, now you're jogging my memory because that it starts off in, in the office and Mickey jumps up on the desk and is talking to them and then they kind of say, let's let's go to the theater or whatever and they head out of the office and 
that's where all the characters they're sort of whistling and yelling for everybody to catch up and they're all kind of pouring out of hallways and offices to head into the screening room and there there was a combination of cartoon animation and live action um, people in costume in that yeah this is when the backstage studio tour was I mean a really long experience I mean more than an hour to do the whole thing because it was so many different uh, pieces to it there was the the tram tour and the walking tour and there was this film there was the lottery the the, the film with Bette Midler that you saw right before this as well um you know, again, this is also, again, way back when the studio was a really working studio. So, yeah, like you said, Jeff, he's got the right film, just wrong place. The the um, the animation studio tour was something different, not part of the backstage tour. Yeah, we need we need to at some point do a way back machine on on kind of walking everybody through the tour because it had a lot of different components and all the different actors and actresses at the time. And George Lucas, Mel Gibson, Pee Wee Herman were all in different parts of that. So it would make for a good segment. Yeah, I remember Mel Brooks and Eddie Murphy and Francis Ford Coppola. So yeah, that you're right. We can spend a good three, four hours probably talking about that at a way back. So talking about an hour and a half tour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, let's go on to the next email. This says, "My husband's kid, my husband, kids, and I love to listen to your podcast on our long drives to visit family. My husband and I were so inspired after listening to you talk about the Disney Half Marathon." that we've begun training as well. Please come visit me at Celebration Hospital. My question regards the Epcot Vibe, the acapella singing group that sang in the American Pavilion. One of my favorite must-see activities was catching a few of their concerts when we visited. One of my most magical Walt Disney World moments was listening to the Liberty Singers sing God Bless America when the chorus began. The Epcot Vibe singers were in a circle one level above us, and they came in the most beautiful harmonies. I just love listening to them. Any word on why Disney chose not to continue? Any word on a similar group coming to the American Adventure anytime? Thanks so much for the show. It helps keep our Disney fanaticism going when we aren't visiting. That comes from Anne Elise from uh, Record New Hampshire. Um, for those of you who don't remember, Epcot Vibe was a nine-member a cappella group, somewhat like the Voices of Liberty, but they also had this upright bass, and they, they performed really uh, more pop American music, and they actually used to sell a CD. They still might sell it, over at the store, over at the American Pavilion in World Showcase. Uh, they haven't been there for really, Jeff, a, a number of years, and I don't know why. I, I have to just assume that the contract expired and was just never renewed. What, what time frame was that, Lou? Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've never, I never actually had the pleasure of seeing them. I think they stopped probably maybe four or five years ago. Um, so it was after 2000. What I'll do is I'll put links up in the show notes to some photos you can find and a couple of websites where maybe you can find out some more information about Epcot Vibe. And again, if you like them, I still think that you can actually order the CDs. They're probably still available on Amazon.com. I assume the group is still together, just not performing in Walt Disney World. So the next email comes from Christine in Elgin, Illinois, who said, Lou, I guess my parents never wanted the awkward experience of taking me to the making of me because I I didn't even know it existed until recently. I haven't been to the pavilion in a long time because it's always closed when I'm there, so that's probably part of it. Anyway, I've been trying to find much, trying to find information on the movie, what it said, what what it was shown, but I'm not finding out much. Can you tell me more about what was in this attraction? Love the show. Jeff, she's obviously talking about The Making of Me. That was the film uh, that opened in 1989 that was shown over at the Wonders of Life Pavilion that starred Martin Short. And very unique to a, a Disney theme park, it actually explore the topic of human reproduction and birth in pr- relatively sensitive but somewhat explicit ways. 
Yeah, and I'm afraid that's about all we can really say about it. Um, what's the next thing you know? Well, I said it was family-friendly podcast, but we can talk about the show a little bit because the one thing Disney did very, very well is that they were uh, very sensitive in their portrayal of this process. They actually really focused more on things like romance and marriage as opposed to the physical aspects of reproduction and childbirth, although they did show uh, footage of actually the birth process, obviously not in, in too graphic a detail. Um, but Disney was also very cautious. They, they wanted you before you went in to make sure that you used you know, your own discretion in deciding whether your family, depending on how old they were, uh, was able to go and see it. But it was actually a pretty neat little film, and I was, I was very impressed at how, how well they put it together. Yeah, I think um, part of the disadvantage with it was is that it was uh, 10 minutes long, but the theater only held about 100 people, and it wasn't something you just did a lot um, because it just you had to wait. Um, there was typically um, sometimes a longer wait for that than the other attractions in the Wonders of Life Pavilion just because of that turnaround time. So I think it's not real memorable to a lot of folks because they just didn't do it a whole, whole lot. Yeah, and it's not one of those things that you look at the map as you're walking through and say, oh, God, we have to go do the making of me, like you would see, you know, with maybe like even the Country Bears or another show like that. But here, here's a quick trivia question for you. There was a cool reference to a Disney live-action film in that movie. Do you remember what it was? Um, I remember there was, and I, I'm drawing a total blank on remembering what it was. Though. There may be more than one, but the one I was thinking of was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and that's the movie that Martin Short's parents went to go see. Um, right, right. Now I do remember that. So let's go to the next email. Uh, this one is very interesting. It says, somewhere along the way, my wife and I have picked up on a story or rumor that a few years ago, Disney included a question in one of their surveys to gauge interest in a cemetery on Walt Disney World property. Have you ever heard of this? This topic came up the other day, and my wife and I were like, well, yeah, that would be awesome. Thanks for the great podcast. That comes from David in Memphis, Tennessee. I, I have never heard of that before. Um, maybe it came up because of the recent discussion about the, the rumors of people sprinkling <laughs> ashes and things like that. I just, you know, with all the denominational issues, and, and I know, you know, for certain religions, um, land for a cemetery has to be designated as, you know, a burial ground or must be consecrated ground. And I'm not sure that Disney would even, you know, consider going down that road. It smells like urban legend to me. Although, sign me up, because if I, you know, <laughs> if I can't be sprinkled there, might as well, you know. Give the give the family a reason to come down and visit. So, uh, you know, I haven't heard anything about a cemetery, but I hear there are cryogenic chambers under Cinderella's castle. Just one, a single, a single just, one. Just, just one right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next one comes from Brenda McIntyre, who said, "Hey Lou, I'm just wondering if you know why they took out the riverboat ride out of Disney's Animal Kingdom." Thanks. I'm looking forward to the show tomorrow. Well, Brenda, you are probably talking about the old Discovery River taxis. I don't remember these, Jeff. They were there from about June of 98 and we're not there for very long it was a kind of a round trip tour to and from the safari village um and it kind of just gave you wasn't really anything more than sort of a just a circular tour of the park it didn't wasn't really a mode of transportation to get you you know to the other side to asia or to africa or something like that yeah and there's and help me out with this because i've, I've always been a little bit confused when i've been trying to track um this information down because it's kind of just very disjointed trying to find out exactly what happened on that boat ride because I didn't I was we weren't able to do it and am I correct in that um, 
the dinosaur figure that is now in front of, uh, or there was a dinosaur animatronic in the river as part of it. There's the dinosaur, there's the dragon type stone rock formation that supposedly had audio smoke kind of effects associated with it. And then on top of everything else, at one point it was the Radio Disney riverboat ride, was it not? Yeah, it, it was. It had a very short life, but it had like 25 different names because <laughs> it closed. You know, it opened in June and then it closed in September and it reopened as uh, the Discovery River Taxis. That closed in a 1999. It reopened again as the the Radio Disney River Cruise, thinking that if they, add, if they put a DJ on board, that might make this round trip tip more appealing. That didn't work. Um, and again, it closed you know, later on that year. But the dragon that you're talking about, or the cave of the dragon, if you're, you're walking over the bridge into Africa, and if you look, uh, if actually if you walk by the Dawa bar, you can you get a kind right. of a good look. Yeah. Across the river, there's what looks like scorched rocks, and that's where this, this animatronic dragon was supposed to pop out. I don't think they ever got that far other than to go beyond getting some smoke to maybe come out um, and just sort of having some mist sort of coming out of there. Obviously a reference to the quote-unquote upcoming beastly kingdom land which we all know has never seen the light of day but um for a variety of reasons that that boat ride was never popular maybe had they put another destination on the river somewhere and given it you know some sort of mode of transportation that would have been somewhat more appealing to guests but there was only one dock and it was a long wait obviously and then once you're on you're on i mean you can't get off anywhere else you've got to stay on the boat so um I'd love to see it come back. You can still see the boats. They do travel around, but now they just have characters on them, just sort of waving to you. They play music and they wave to you on the shores. Uh, you know, the boats are there, the docks are there. Clearly, there's attraction an attraction waiting to happen there. They just need to find the right mix of, you know, what whatever they can do with it to make it work. Yeah, actually, they do. That feeds out onto the water area. They kind of looks upon Everest that's um, near the barbecue restaurant and if you go down to some of the seating areas that's where you'll very very frequently see the characters on the boat going by. And there was actually a rumor um, last year that they were going to use these boats and make like a floating character meal out of it and again that that's one that was, was relatively short lived I guess maybe it might just be wishful thinking or when they saw the characters on there um, you would get your food and go on this cruise which you know might make sense obviously they couldn't cook on there but if they served you food on the cruise but again you're you're locked into this this long round trip thing and maybe that's part of the problem so next email comes from Dwayne who says I'm a new listener and first time emailer to the show in the last show someone wrote in about the Odyssey restaurant I agree that they should reopen it but it brings to mind another extinct Walt Disney World restaurant I wish they would reopen the Adventureland Veranda it was a favorite of mine before the Odyssey or Epcot Center existed I love the teriyaki burger. Occasionally, I make my own at home, but can't get it quite right. There was a burger available at Backyard Burgers restaurants that's pr- pretty close, but not quite right. So the theming of the Adventureland Veranda also totally worked for me, and it seemed to be a bit quieter than the other Magic Kingdom restaurants. What are your thoughts? As for your show, I was instantly hooked. I thought my attention to Disney details was pretty good, but you guys are amazing. I heard about things I've never heard before. I'll be a regular listener from now on. Keep up the great work. And again, that's from Dwayne. Uh, yeah, we talked about the rumors about the Adventureland restaurant, uh, Veranda restaurant, possibly reopening as a pirate-themed restaurant. There were rumors floating out with the name of it being called Tortuga or Tortugas. I know that it has been reopened, Jeff, at least to a certain degree, for a Jack Sparrow character meet-and-greets during the Pirate and Princess Party, but that's really about it. 
Yeah, we've had we've had some uh, covert operatives uh, going behind the scenes and uh, trying to sneak us pictures and things like that. And it's interesting because it's not really being used for anything, uh, according to what we've been told. And I, I, I kind of find it interesting because it's really, you know, when the park gets really, really crowded um, and you're, you're knee deep in people in some of the other uh, counter service venues, you're, I'm kind of surprised that they couldn't make it work. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it feels like it could be needed a lot of times. And, and again, the rumor with the pirate, you know, restaurant is a very, very cool rumor. We're, we're kind of keeping our eye on that to see if something happens. Yeah, I mean, the venue is there, the space is there, the theming is there. Uh, clearly, there's a need for another sit-down restaurant in the Magic Kingdom. So it only makes sense that this is what should happen with it at some point. Um, I, I don't think they're obviously getting the best use of that space for, for character meet and greets. But um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, if anything, happens to it. So like I said, we'll, we'll definitely be keeping our eye on that. Next email comes from Laura Johnson from Rochester, Minnesota, who said, Lou, still loving the show and trying to catch up from the busy summer months of chasing a two-year-old around before our family's annual trip this year. As I plan with my sister-in-law, I scare myself how much I know about Walt Disney World due to the news and views and rumor mill and the rest of the podcast. There's so much I can't wait to see that you and your guests have covered on the show. Things I've always gone past, being a thrill ride junkie, like the Hall of Presidents that I now have to see. So here's my question, and forgive me if it's been answered in one of your books, which I'm a proud owner of. If that's the case, just send me in the right direction. I've often wondered if there are rules about the number of Mickeys on property at any one time. I would imagine that Disney would be very careful not to allow the magic to be broken if a child or adult were faced with the puzzlement if faced with two Mickeys. Do you know if there are any such rules, or do you have any insight as to how they orchestrate Mickey's appearances? I know there are scheduled meet and greets, but with parades and shows every day at each park, I can't imagine that there's only one cast me- one friend of Mickey each day. What? What? What's she talking about, Lou? There's only one Mickey. Well, that's the thing, Laura. There is. We all know that there is only one Mickey, but. You've got to remember, this is Walt Disney World, it's the Magic Kingdom, it's full of magic. So there is only one Mickey that can appear at one time, especially in each theme park. But uh, Mickey is very fast, and Mickey can very easily get from his meet and greets in Toontown over to the parade, over to other locations in and around property. But uh, I can guarantee you, you will never, ever see two Mickeys anywhere at the same time. And... uh, even if you see him in, in MGM Studios and then hot-footed over to the Magic Kingdom, chances are he'll be beating you there. So, Next email comes from Doug, and he says, Lou, I was wondering what you think is the best moderate resort to stay at during the Christmas season as far as theme, decorations, and activities. Thanks and love the show. Jeff, I'm going to let you go first because I have a hands-down favorite. I, I, I would have to go with Port Orleans Riverside. Or not Port Orleans Riverside, Port Orleans Port Orleans. <laughs> Sorry. I assume you mean French Quarter. French Quarter, thank you. God, I hate middle age. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. We didn't even compare, you know, we didn't go through these emails beforehand, but without a doubt, I, I love French Quarter just any time of year, and during the Christmas season, I like it even more. I think the decorations are very, very well done. Uh, the, the resort is very small, it's very intimate. The, the decorations are not over the top. You know, if you're looking for things like sit-down restaurants, whatnot, you're not going to get that there, and that's probably the only drawback to French Quarter. But uh, it's, a, it's a very short walk over to Boat Rights over at Riverside, and I just think French Quarter is far and away, in my opinion, the best of the moderate resorts. I agree. 
Next email is from Deb from Michigan who says, Lou, I was thinking about 1900 Park Fair today. That's over at the Grand Floridian. That's one of the restaurants there. And it struck me that I have no idea where that name comes from. And I know it must relate to something. Disney never just randomly picks out a name for something. Does it relate to Mary Poppins? Looking forward to the answer. Thanks, Deb. Deb, like you, Jeff, maybe you have some help. I have no idea what 1900 Park Fair relates to. And my first thought was Mary Poppins, but I've never been able to find any correlation between the two. Yeah, the closest I was able to come, and basically I kind of I went in a sort of a non-Disney direction in terms of the Grand Floridian being based very much on the, uh, the sort of the tourist expansion into Florida at the turn of the century and when Flagler, um, sort of the, the millionaire um, tycoon, uh, started building in southern Florida and very much built resorts that the Grand Floridian was ultimately based off of architecturally and thematically and everything like that. And that's the closest I could get because that, that period of growth, that period of hotel building kind of took place around 1900, late late 1890s, heading into the first, first part of, of the 20th century. That's the closest I can get to any kind of connection. So if, if any of our listeners out there have have a clue or have any any more insight into us that definitely you know let us know the only and i'm thinking out loud the only possible correlation i could think of is there is a, a band organ that sat above the floor called big bertha and that was built in paris probably about a hundred years ago possibly maybe in 1900 or in the early 1900s maybe it was located maybe they took it from someplace that was located at 1900 park avenue again I'm completely speculating, but it did play music from Mary Poppins. So that's why, again, I thought that there would be some sort of, of connection there. But again, like you said, if anybody knows, I, I would love to know the answer to this. And maybe, Jeff, this, this totally screams research trip to the Grand Floridian. And we can ask <laughs> we can ask some, some poor, unsuspecting college program cast member who just, just wants to wait the table. Why is this place called 1900 Park Fair? So, again, odd looks are coming. And there's Dave Smith, the spirit of Dave Smith, looking over our shoulder saying, sometimes it doesn't mean anything. Why guy, Why don't you guys just go there and eat and, and go to the parks and ride the rides? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jeff, here's one uh, that I specifically pulled out because it was addressed to you as well. And it says, Lou, several weeks ago, you and Jeff were talking about the words and feelings that go with Epcot and perhaps all the parks. You were struggling to find the right choices and it got me thinking. I think that perhaps I found the words you two were hunting for, and they are as follows. For the Magic Kingdom, Joy, Epcot, Hope, Disney MGM Studios, Show, and Animal Kingdom, Who Knows? In the beginning, the Magic Kingdom brought out the child in everyone of every age and tries to continue that to this day with varying results. When Epcot came along, it tried to show the wonder of finding new ways that lead to the promise of brighter days. In a word, hope. The hope for us, the hope for the future. When the Disney MGM Studios came along, it moved further away from emotions, which was the basis for both the Magic Kingdom and for Epcot. Instead of evoking an emotional response, it tried to overwhelm by, by providing the emotion for you, the show. However, the Animal Kingdom fails to do any of these things. It does not bring out any emotion. It doesn't try to fill the void by providing you with what your response is supposed to be. It does not educate and barely entertains. Unfortunately, don't worry, Jeff, you're going to get your chance. Animal Kingdom is a park without a central clear purpose. I hope this helps you and Jeff. Perhaps at least it gives some points to ponder. And that's from Larry from Elkton, Maryland. Ah, oh, Larry, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Uh, it was funny. Is uh, he he was he articulated that all very well. But uh, you and I have discussed it many times, and we've actually done a few segments where we very much go against that notion out there that that Animal Kingdom is somehow lacking or doesn't fit the mold. And while I I wouldn't use a word that necessarily was an emotion per se, my word that Larry couldn't come up with for for Animal Kingdom would be adventure. Um, And that is rooted in where Animal Kingdom has its company roots, and that is when Walt in the 1950s started a new film endeavor, which was the True Life Adventures. And the True Life Adventures was basically Walt taking us out into the world and showing us these these places and these creatures and these settings that we were, really didn't have access to. And he brought them to our doorstep in a very entertaining and sort of edutaining way, as we often use the buzzwords here. And so in that regard, I, I very much disagree. I think I think um, Animal Kingdom doesn't get its due. I love Animal Kingdom. I think Animal Kingdom is one of the best themed, incredibly educational, but at the same time, never boring. I think you, you just have to approach it from a sort of a different mindset. Um, the first couple years that it was there, I, I had a hard time. I wrestled with it because you, you're just in a mode with Disney that you, you're, you're rushing to the e-tickets and you want the thrill rides and you want the sort of fantasy experiences. And that's not what Animal Kingdom delivers, but um, it delivers something very different. And I, I really enjoy what it is. It's one of my favorite places in Disney World. Yeah, like he said, Larry, with all due respect, I think you, you very well articulated your point. And I think for a lot of guests, what you're saying is holds true because that's, that is how they feel and that's why Animal Kingdom has the unfortunate reputation that it does. But if I was to, to use a word to describe it, it's one that I think could be used for all the theme parks, but more specifically Animal Kingdom because here it's more appropriate and that's discovery because that's what all these parks is about is not just rushing in, riding rides, and seeing shows, grabbing something to eat, and going home. There's so much to explore and discover, and that's what we try and do on the show, and that's what I'm trying to do with, and I'm not trying to shamelessly plug the CDs, but to open your eyes and allow you to take the time and explore all these parks, and you people don't take the time to explore all the, the wonders and the gems that are in Disney MGM Studios, but Disney's Animal Kingdom is just filled. It's a plethora of these things, and the education that you get, that you're not going to get anywhere else where you can get hands-on with these animals and see up close and personal how the, the animals are trained and taken care of and the, Disney's efforts on the conservation front, you are being educated and you are being entertained. And I see it it, it runs the gamut and, and the entire demographic of little kids whose eyes are opened and get this new amazement and adults who finally who are taught about things that maybe they never had an opportunity to see before at a local zoo or anything like that. So I think that's what we're trying to do about Animal Kingdom specifically is show you that it is so much deeper than maybe what you see on the surface when you open up that map and say, well, I only want to see Everest. I only want to see Lion King and that's it. And it's a half day park. It's not a half day park. And, and I think, Jeff, we're going to continue to endeavor to open your eyes and open your minds to all that this park has to offer yeah we uh sometime in the future we plan on taking everybody along the maharaja jungle trek and the pangani uh trail in africa and i uh, i think you'll all be pleasant you, the, the kind of the doubters will all be pleasantly surprised with uh what, what we say what we can show you is there absolutely absolutely so and, and you know jeff larry i know larry is not alone in what his feelings are and 
You know, that's the unfortunate thing is that's the, the, the dare I say, overwhelming perception about Animal Kingdom just on the surface. So we're doing our part. We're doing our part. We're, so. we're changing the world one, one email. To one listener. <laughs> 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 One six-hour show at a time. So, all right. Yeah. The next email comes from Jason Eatman, who writes, I have a question about the band Junkanoo Crew that played in Epcot. Where did they play? A friend and I were remembering them and couldn't figure out where their style of music would fit into Epcot. We figured they must have been out in the Outpost area in World Showcase. If you have time, could you confirm this? Thanks. And by the way, thanks for your books, website, and podcast. They all make my query for info about Walt Disney World so much easier. Well... Jeff, I don't know if you remember, the Junkanoo crew didn't really play in a specific location. They were part of the Junkanoo bus that used to travel around the promenade in World Showcase. Yeah, I do remember that. That was early 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they haven't been around for a long time. Yeah. That, the bus was actually later converted to the character Carib- holiday bus, yeah. right, right. And they played, uh, you know, Caribbean music and reggae and soca and Latin music. Uh, they were very, very colorful. I mean, the bus was extremely colorful in, in reds and yellows and greens and things like that. And Heavy heavy in the steel drums, correct? Yeah, yeah, and it was yeah, great. I mean, I, it was really nice because it was a very, you know, you were you were surprised by it. You weren't uh, expecting this bus to pull up, these people to come out, instantly shut up shop, and start playing. So uh, much like the band over by the Dawa Bar, um, just a very sort of um, unique style and sound and something I really used to enjoy, so... Next email says, Heidi ho there, Lou. My name is Doug Fraser, and I'm a mouseaholic. I'm a new fan of your show and all its various segments and presenters and would like a moment to gush about it. Bear with me. I have a point to be followed by a question. I've been listening to your podcast for about two months now, thanks to my wife Kim finding it, and I've loved every one of them so far. I've even started listening to the first ones to catch up with the past shows. Thank you. What has struck me the most about you and your cast of characters is that you get it. This may be a simple phrase, but it has deep meaning for my wife and I. I'll just sort of paraphrase um, some more of Doug's email. He really seems to like the fact that you, Jeff, and all of us get it. And, you know, we all kind of share the same passion. And he really liked what we did with Celebration 25 and Marty Sklar and how we were able to kind of bring that emotion and magic of the day in. But here's his question. What's the green side of Mission Space like? I say this as someone who has ridden the orange side, loved the takeoff, but felt moderately ill afterwards. I think I was reacting to the weaving motion of the spacecraft. Star, Star, Star Tours really messes with me that way. Can I feel good about trying the alternative ride, or is it another Star Tours? I'd love to look forward to the ride every time I go to Epcot. Keep up the great work. Your pal, Doug Fraser from Marion, Iowa. So, Jeff, let's just clarify first. Mission Space, when it first opened, had uh, a single type of attraction, a single type of ride wherein uh, it was a centrifuge and it not only did it tilt and yaw back and forth, but it also obviously spun. Uh, in May or so of 2006, Disney gave you an option for a less intense version. So now there's the green team, which is sort of half throttle, and the orange, theme, orange team, which is the full experience. And the green team is much more tame you don't if you have some motion sickness issues you won't get that for the most part on the green side but it's still you, you still get that feeling of, of, of launching and we actually had a chance to ride the green time the green side for the first time for me uh, I guess it was earlier this year or last year it was February or May it was one on, on one of those two trips when we we met um, yeah you made fun of me because I uh, I said can we can we hang a left here instead of a right and and I uh, 
I, to, to, to fess up to the viewer, to the listeners, I uh, I had a, a minor, minor diagnosis of mild hypertension, so I was a little paranoid. So we, I, we, my family and I, we'd always read the, um, we had always wrote the more intense side, and and I, I really thought I was surprised because I, I thought it would be a very different experience, and in fact, it was just cra- basically the G forces that you feel on blast off that really is the biggest difference in the attraction, the kind of the simulator rocking and moving. Um, as you're going into space and then coming down for your landings are all pretty much intact. I mean, I, you, you can speak to it more than I could because uh, you just had that recent you know, experience with it. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the orange version. I really like getting that full experience, but I understand that some people, by the way, nice of you to play on the sympathies of the listeners, some people can't uh, experience it. And it give, it's great because it gives a much broader demographic the opportunity to experience the attraction. I still think that you get that thrill uh, that you would get with the normal attraction without some of the, the potential motion sickness issues so um, I enjoy both sides I enjoy both sides I, if I had a preference I would go for the full orange experience but I think both sides are, are easily enjoyed by everybody alright Jeff just a couple more to get to before we finish the next one says hey Lou I just want to start off by saying how much my brother and I enjoy your podcast we live in New York and try to go to Walt Disney World as much as we can but tuning into your show each week definitely fills the void when we're not there I was watching some old home movies of previous trips down to Florida and noticed that there was a steel drum playing in Adventureland outside Pirates of the Caribbean. The last year we went, they were still playing, and that was 1994. Since then, I've always been wondering what happened to them. When did they stop performing in Adventureland? Why did they stop? And when did they start? I really enjoyed how their music fit into the setting and created an authentic Caribbean atmosphere. Thanks for your time and everything you do. Keep on keeping on. Patrick. Jeff, do you remember who he's talking about? Yeah, absolutely. The Steel Drum Band uh, was there pretty early on, and in fact, um, on one of the very, very first um, releases um, where they released uh, a musical album, this would have been back actually with with a record or a cassette, uh, they included a track that featured the uh, Steel Drum Band performing, um, and it was primarily Steel Drum, kind of like you said, what we were talking about before with the other band, uh, reggae kind of music, and they were pretty much a fixture. Um, pretty much they would always set up on that kind of stage area on the opposite side of uh, the entrance to Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. They were actually, they were called JP and the Silver Stars. And they originally they were called the Adventureland Steel Band, and they were from Trinidad. And I remember them, you know, like Patrick, seeing them all the time and really kind of getting that uh, flair, that Caribbean flair, uh, when you went over to Pirates of the Caribbean. And you're right. They were in, um, I actually remember how they had like an adventure, it was called like the Adventureland song or the Adventureland Delight or something on an old yeah. official album. And uh, I, I had, like you, I had it on cassette. And again, kids are going, what, what's a cassette? But um, they were, uh, like you said, they like you said, they were performed right across from um, Pirates of the Caribbean. And I assume maybe it's only within the last maybe five to seven years that they, they probably stopped playing there. I, yeah, and, I, and my memory, again, is always failing me, as I've, I've mentioned a few times on the show today. But I I could swear, within even the last few years, I've seen steel drum performers over there. I, I could be totally blurring it all together. But, I mean, you, you, haven't, you don't remember seeing anything recently? I don't remember the last time they were there. I'm going to try and find out some more information about, specifically about JP and the Silver Stars, when they stopped playing. Uh, I, I want to say it was probably around 2002 is when I would estimate. But, again, if anybody has any more definitive times because you know the, the trips start kind of <laughs> all gelling into one another but uh, yeah I used to love JP and the Silver Stars so 
Let's get to one more. This comes from Ben in Fayetteville, Arkansas, who says, Lou, I love the show. I used to wait anxiously for a particular Disney newsletter, which shall remain nameless, but since I found your podcast, the newsletter just doesn't really meet my Disney needs anymore. Here's to slowly increasing pixie dust addictions. So here's my question. Somebody told me that the flags that fly over the Magic Kingdom are replaced each and every day. I was wondering what they do with the flags and if they're available for sale. Thanks for answering my question, Ben. Ben, the questions that you're talking about, um, I assume, are the ones that line the tops of the buildings on Main Street USA. And those actually aren't really official American flags. They're pennants. And the, the distinction is that they don't have to follow the same type of guidelines that an American flag does about being taken down at night or being lit or uh, being out in inclement weather. So they're a little bit different. They don't have 50 stars. They don't have 13 stripes on it. I've never heard of them being taken down or replaced nightly. Uh, I assume that they are obviously replaced once they get tattered. But, Jeff, unless, unless you know something that, that I don't know, um, I think they're there, you know, unless they start to, you know, get weathered. Uh, that's, yeah, my impression as well. And one more email. This one comes from Bobby. He says, hey, Lou, I've been hearing on your podcast about the discussion of Epcot and characters never being an emphasis. Was that during the opening of Epcot Center that Mickey and the Fab Five were banned? When did characters become involved with Epcot? Were the characters in Epcot a more recent event, or in what year did they begin to appear? Thanks for any research on the topic. I'm intrigued by the topic after hearing it on your podcast and others about Epcot not being a place for the typical characters besides Fignet. Also, this topic comes up now that there's the character connection, Donald in the Mexico Pavilion, and the Kim Possible game in the last few years. My argument is that some have been have, have forgotten the characters that were part of Epcot Center in its more earlier years when I first visited of course, there could be an argument when those years were 80s or opening day. Again, that's from Bobby. Jeff, I'm sure we could take the ball and run with as much as we have in the past about characters and their connections to Epcot and the genesis of characters coming in. We all know about how when Epcot first opened, it was very specifically designated that there would be no characters there. Mickey was noticeably absent. As urban legend has it, Michael Eisner came in, said, where are the characters? And literally the next day, uh, you started seeing Mickey and the Fab Five showing up. You made reference to characters like Figment and like characters in El Rio and sort of the progression that we have today. But, uh, Jeff, I mean, I I know this is something that that obviously um, you have very specific feelings on. Yeah, when I I never experienced Epcot without the, the standard Disney you know stock characters I, I my first visit to Epcot was in 87 and that was five years in and Michael Eisner had arrived and had pretty much you know and I, I I don't mind the characters being there I mean I I have you know specific issues with sometimes the theming of the attractions like Nemo fitting into Future World and things like that but I love the three caballeros in Mexico and um I really, you know, when we were there, one of the things that I thought was really neat, and this was something that I think had pretty much come about like 86, 87, because when I was there in 87 and 88, they had done a very big um, kind of push on the characters in World Showcase. And if you remember, they had a line of merchandise that featured Mickey uh, dressed up in Uncle Sam, uh, Donald in his kind of three caballero garb. Um, Minnie, I believe, was in a kimono representing Japan. So they took the characters and kind of, you know, had identities in each of the countries. And I thought that was very, very neat. And um, it, it, it made for very good meet and greets that were very low key. If you walked around World Showcase, you had the opportunity to get pictures with them in their various, you know, cultural identities in that regard. And I, it was one of the most enjoyable couple years I had, you know, within World Showcase with, with that kind of atmosphere. And, you know, I, I, I don't mind characters. <laughs> No, I mean, 